You're listening to Sermons at FCC Moorhead, a podcast of sermons preached at First Christian Church in Moorhead, Kentucky. A congregation in the Christian Church Disciples of Christ tradition, we are a faith community seeking to live out Christ's call of hospitality and shalom. I'm Reverend Nancy Galler, minister at FCC, and each week we'll post the latest sermon preached from our pulpit. Most weeks you'll hear my voice, but from time to time you'll find guest preachers on this podcast too. Thanks for listening. In the year that King Uzziah died, our reading from Hebrew scriptures begins. It was 740 BCE and Isaiah was mourning the death of a king the only ruler he had ever known, a good king. And the question rattling in his head, never far from his mind, is this. What happens to a kingdom when it loses its king? It was the year Pearl Harbor was attacked. The year JFK died. The year the Twin Towers fell the year of COVID-19. It was a time when everything that had been sure or trustworthy, dependable, and familiar had been stripped away when what we thought we knew about the world, about our nation, and ourselves fell apart. What's left to believe in? What use is there in anything? And so it is in the midst of this fear and uncertainty, troubled by a future he cannot see, Isaiah is in the temple. Is he seeking answers? Is he looking for direction? Is he pleading for assurance? Is he hoping against hope that God will speak to him? Suddenly there, Isaiah is overwhelmed by a vision. It's a vision of a heavenly court that surrounds him on all sides. And it's a strange vision. His eyes are lifted up. He is drawn to what he says is the Lord. And he offers us these tantalizing details of what he sees, describing how just the hymn of God's garments overflows the temple and swirling around were the attendants of God, the seraphim. Now forget your classically Greek images of angels in white gowns or chubby little cheek cherubs fluttering about. These are seraphs. These are fiery creatures with six wings, two for flying, two for covering their faces, two for covering their feet which in Hebrew is often a euphemism for genitals. And it's the root word of seraphim, seraph, that's often associated with the burning venom of snakes, which leaves open the possibility, Robert Alter writes, that seraphim were winged snakes. Such a troubling vision. These hovering seraphim cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the word glory has as its root meaning to be heavy or significant. 
this vision, this wonderful glory of the Lord overwhelms Isaiah, and he may have come to the temple in a fog of grief. He may have been searching for meaning after the death of his king, looking for security or direction, but there in the temple, he finds himself face to face with the glory of God that cannot be contained because it overflows the temple and it spills out, filling all of creation. Now, as his vision overwhelms him, Isaiah is struck with his own unworthiness. He can only think of all the reasons he shouldn't be there. Woe is me, Isaiah says, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. I am lost doesn't quite capture what he's saying because the clause can be translated, I am undone. I am dumbfounded, speechless. And this is not just Isaiah's shortcoming. For now that he has been in the presence of God, he's shaken to his core. And he feels the unworthiness of his people too. And he goes on to say, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Against these protestations, a seraph flies down to Isaiah with all of its wings abuzz and touches his mouth with a hot coal and declares his guilt departed and his sin atoned. Once he is purified, Isaiah hears the voice of God speaking. What he hears is a conversation in a heavenly council, and we don't quite know whether Isaiah is supposed to hear this conversation or he just overhears it. It's unclear. Another prophet in 1 Kings 22 also has a vision of a heavenly court and this give and take discussion. And in that vision, Micaiah hears God ask for someone to fulfill a mission. And there's a give and take in the heavenly court and eventually a member of the heavenly host finally agrees to go which is this marvelously cheeky little story we have in Kings in which even God has trouble getting recruits from his own angels. And now in this story, Isaiah overhears God asking, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And while the angels of the heavenly Hosts all look to the ground, hoping someone else will volunteer. Perhaps Isaiah pipes up and says, I'll go, send me. It's a bit like that scene of the Council of Elrond in The Lord of the Rings. You will find out that I am a Lord of the Rings fan, a big Tolkien fan. That council gathers together elves and dwarves and humans, and they're all meeting to decide what to do with the ring of power, this ring so evil that it will bring down all of their kingdoms. And finally, they agree that it must be destroyed, and they understand that it is the most impossible task to do so, to take the ring and throw it into the fires and the mountain of doom. And all of the people in the Council of Elrond are filled with dread and no one dares to speak a word until a small voice breaks the silence and an unassuming little hobbit named Frodo speaks up and says, 
I will take the ring, though I do not know the way. Isaiah hears the call of God and answers, here I am. Send me to a call, maybe not even given to him, to an assignment he doesn't fully understand. But he knows this. He knows that his people, his folk with unclean lips, just like his, need a messenger. And without thinking of the consequences, he jumps in and says, I'll do it. Think about it, it is a stark contrast to the pillar of the Jewish story, Moses, who, when God calls him from a fiery bush to, to go and set his people free from slavery in Egypt, is filled with all sorts of excuses why he should not go. Who am I to do this, says Moses? Then what will I say? What if they don't believe me? I'm a terrible public speaker, on and on again until finally Moses says, please send somebody else. But not Isaiah. He's not a reluctant Moses. He cannot contain his excitement. He's eager for the task. Now our lectionary reading ends here at that, those words from Isaiah. But something strange happens in the verses immediately following. And I want us to consider those together. Translators and interpreters have had a tough time with what these lines mean. If you read it in the Hebrew text, there's an imperative command. God tells Isaiah to prophesy to the people saying, keep listening, but do not comprehend. Keep looking, but do not understand. And then when the Hebrew Bible was first translated into Greek, those imperatives of the Hebrew were turned into a future tense in the Greek. And we can hear it if we read the messages rending of this passage where God tells Isaiah, go and tell this people, listen hard, but you aren't going to get it. Look hard, but you won't catch on. And translators and scholars have said, well, which one is it? Is it the meaning of the Hebrew text, which is a catch-22 because God commands the people not to understand? And if people obey the command not to understand, then they've understood the command, right? Which means they're not obeying the command not to understand. But if they understand and repent, then they're standing against the divine command not to understand. So in the Hebrew text, it is God who is the source of the people's inability to understand. And this harkens back again to the story of Moses and, and when God hardens the heart of Pharaoh. And we may even hear echoes of this in the New Testament when Jesus speaks in parables so that folks might hear but not understand. Instead of the Hebrew understanding, we could take the meaning from the Greek translation, though, which describes the experience of hearing but not understanding, of looking but not really seeing. In other words, no matter how well Isaiah does his job, the people are going to reject it because they will misunderstand what he's saying. It is their willful separation from God 
which creates this spiritual blindness so that they cannot see the presence of God in their midst. In the end, either way, whether we take the Hebrew or the Greek understanding, the task that Isaiah is, has taken up seems grim. Go preach to the people, Isaiah. And no matter how well you preach, how many times you speak, how large or small the audiences are, no one will listen. No, no one will understand. So who in their right mind would agree to take up a task which there is no hope of accomplishing? The world was falling apart for Isaiah, and we can understand that dilemma because for us, too, there is so much wrong with our world. There is so much suffering and violence and hatred. There are so many people without shelter, without hope. There are so many victims of violent acts who are targeted because of their difference because of their religion or skin color or ethnic group or the person they love. I don't know about you, but when I go online to read the news, I try very hard not to look at the comment section because it so very often disappoints me. There we see so much hate and intolerance. The ease at which condemnation and calls for violence are expressed is enough to make one lose their hope in humanity, and that's not something I want to do. I want to believe that the good can prevail, that hatred will not have the last word. So who will go for the Lord in times like this? Who will speak an alternative word to the people? We may feel a kinship with Isaiah. We may see parallels in our day because we too, gathered here, have said yes to God's call. And we too have been sent out on this impossible mission to call for justice when systems of power are rigged against the poor, against those without resources, without land to call their own, without shelter. We're called by God to cry out for peace when the marketplace of war machines issues another call for conflict. And we're called by God to care for the earth, to protect the waters when greed and neglect have wounded our world. There are so many compelling stories of folks working against all odds, of not giving up hope and of the slow, hard work of reconciliation and healing to which we are called. And we need to know those stories. We need to draw inspiration from them, yes, I too can say, here I am, send me, even when the problems seem too great. We need to know stories of people like Daryl Davis, the blues mu musician who after a concert at the Silver Dollar Lounge in Frederick, Maryland in 1982, shared a drink and had a chance encounter with a member of the KKK. Daryl Davis, who is African-American, has now spent the last 30 years of his life 
meeting with KKK members, engaging in the hard work of conversation, approaching each person with a courageous curiosity, and opening up a space for individuals to leave the KKK. In a TED Talk describing his work, Davis reflects saying, ignorance breeds fear. We fear those things we do not understand, and fear will breed hatred, and hatred will breed destruction because we want to destroy those things we hate because they cause us to be afraid. Tomorrow marks the 100th anniversary of the Tulsa race massacre in which white mobs destroyed 35 city blocks, leaving an untold number of black citizens dead, perhaps as many as 300. And it's a horrific story that most of us never learned in school, but it's a story that needs to be told so that we can know our history as a nation. Now, I was captivated this week by a, a smaller story, a much less dramatic story than that of Daryl Davis, who has, over the last 30 years, walked with over 200 former Klansmen in their transformational journey away from hate. But it was a little story from Washington State that caught my attention. I wish I could share the video with you. You're just gonna have to listen to me describe it. I lived in Washington State for 20 years and this video is of members of the Puyallup tribe whose land on which I lived and Pacific Lutheran University, which is the school my son graduated from last year. So this week, the university posted a video on Facebook of a Camas harvesting festival hosted at the college and led by members of the Puyallup tribe. Now, Camas are a small purple wildflower, and they've been harvested by native people for generations. And the roots of those flowers are stored for food in the winter months, and the roots look a little like a very small pearl onion. And the Piala tribe has lived in the Puget Sound region for generations. Its name has a meaning of welcoming and generous people. And the video shows members of the Piala tribe carefully digging up these flowers on what had been a golf course, but has been unused for several years. And Angie Totis, who's a cultural activities coordinator with the Puyallup tribe, gives an explanation in the video of the harvesting rituals. And she explains saying, as you are gathering the roots, you always want to give the creator of Mother Earth thanking them for letting us harvest the camas. And we give thanks for this root, and then we gather them. It's only after the word of thanksgiving that the harvest begins. Now, that is such a small act. A word of thanks before gathering food for oneself and for others. And for us, with the convenience of grocery stores, which carry such great varieties of food, regardless of whether it is in season or not, such activities may seem unnecessary to us. 
maybe just a quaint throwback, quite unrelated to our modern-day situation. But I find so much hope in that small gathering on an old golf course. Because I see it as an act of defiance of the disconnect we have from the land for so much of our lives. Here, a community comes together for the gathering of little tiny roots that most of us would pass by. And as they do so, they pause. They pause to give thanks to God, the source of all life, the giver of these little pearls of nourishment. I think those small acts of recognition can reshape us. They can give us a deeper understanding of our relationship with the land and God's desire for us and for all creation. And that little act of thanksgiving can move us to respond with hope and anticipation even when the challenges of climate change seem too great for us. As the Apostle Paul reminds us in our reading from Romans today, this resurrection life you receive from God is not a timid, grave-tending life. It's adventurously expectant. Greeting God with a childlike, what's next, Papa? So whether it's the courage to engage in difficult conversations, or if it's the gentle intentionality to pause with gratitude and thanksgiving for what God has given us. Each of those are ways in which we can say, yes, Lord, here I am, send me. May we respond to God's call to the impossible with an expectant yes, that God is at work in the world and that we are here. Send us. Send us now. Thanks for listening. We hope you found inspiration today. To learn more about our congregation, you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Until next time, be well, be kind, and always be the church where you are.